Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Medisodes. I'm Adrian and here with me are Anupam, Surya and Shrey. This week we will be discussing the topic bouncing back from brain injury. The brain is one of the most complex organs in the body and plays an essential role in survival. As such, even the smallest of brain injuries can lead to great disruptions to a person's ability to go about their daily life. Brain injury has a profound impact on the lives of not only those who are injured, but also their family members, who may have to make lifestyle changes to accommodate for the person with the brain injury. Being so complex and delicate, the brain is incredibly tricky to treat, and for a long, long time, it was believed that brain injury could not be cured. Even now, therapies are different from how other injuries are treated. They rely less on medication and medical procedures, and focus more on long-term rehabilitation. Several different types of therapy are used to treat different types of brain injury. In this episode, we'll be discussing mirror therapy, speech and language therapy, physiotherapy and cognitive therapy. Firstly, I'll be talking about mirror therapy, which is a relatively new treatment that is used to treat neurological issues. First discovered in 1996, it has been proven as a successful treatment for several neurological issues, some of which stem from brain injury. Firstly, however, to get a better understanding of how mirror therapy works, I'll be talking about its applications in treating amputees who suffer from phantom pain. Phantom pain is a chronic, debilitating condition that affects approximately 80% of people who have had limbs amputated or one side of the body disproportionately affected by injury. Of those affected by phantom pain, as many as 85% of these people report continued phantom pain up to two years after amputation, and, for some, phantom pain can last for decades. A consequence of this is that people who report symptoms of phantom pain are more likely to report depressive symptoms later on in life. Phantom pain has an incredibly profound impact on the quality of life, which is why care for phantom pain has a high demand. But what is phantom pain? Phantom pain is pain that feels like it's coming from a body part that's no longer there. Doctors used to believe that this phenomenon was a psychological issue, but now the origin of this phantom pain is recognised as coming from the spinal cord and brain. Most often, it is a mild pain that is not extreme, but sometimes there may be stronger, more painful sensations that seem to come from the missing parts of the limb. The body part in which the amputee is feeling pain does not exist, and so traditional methods of alleviating pain will not be effective. There's no physical cause of the pain that we can fix. Indeed, it is the brain that doctors must focus on to treat phantom pain, because of the nerves of the central nervous system have not rewired properly to acknowledge the amputation. Mirror therapy is a neurological treatment for phantom pain. When I use the term phantom limb, I'm referring to the amputated limb, the one in which our patient is experiencing phantom pain. Mirror therapy exploits the brain's preference to prioritise visual feedback over somatosensory feedback concerning limb position. Now, I'll go over the technique of mirror therapy, which is simple enough to be carried out at home. The patient places a good limb on one side of a mirror and the stump on the other. Next, the patient looks into the mirror on the side with the unaffected limb and makes mirror symmetric movements, not unlike that of a symphony conductor. Because our patient is seeing the reflected image of the unaffected limb moving, it appears as if the phantom limb is moving. Through the use of this artificial visual feedback, it becomes possible to trick the brain into thinking that it is moving the phantom limb, and so the patient can unclench it from potentially painful positions. 
However, treating phantom pain is not necessarily a way of treating brain injury. Some would argue that amputation and its effects on the brain do not count as brain injury. However, a distinct brain injury in which mirror therapy is used is stroke. A stroke occurs in three main forms, ischemic, which is caused by a blockage such as a clot, blocking off blood supply to the brain, hemorrhagic, which is caused by bleeding or around the brain, and transient ischemic attack, which is also known as mini-stroke and is a temporary blockage of blood to the brain. All strokes are different. In some people, strokes may be severe and life-changing, whilst in others, the stroke may be so mild that a patient can recover in a short time. Often, a stroke can affect one side of the brain disproportionately, and so one side of the body is more paralysed than the other. Mirror therapy, as suggested by a Cochrane review, is an effective treatment improving the mobility of the paralysed side after a stroke. Paralysis of the arm or leg is a common after effect of stroke and causes problems with daily activities such as walking, dressing and eating. The mirror therapy discussed previously works similarly for stroke patients, using a mirror between the arms and legs and moving the more able limb to make it seem as if both limbs are moving. The key results of 67 relevant studies found by the Cochrane Review indicate that mirror therapy moderately improved movement of the upper and lower limbs and consequently increased the independence of the patient for daily tasks. Mirror therapy is a part of a larger rehabilitation treatment for altered nervous systems. The whole treatment is called gradient motor imagery, or GMI for short, and consists of three different stages, left-right discrimination training, motor imagery exercises, and mirror therapy. These three stages are delivered sequentially. However, the course is flexible and the doctor may recommend progressing backwards or forwards depending on the status of the patient. Even today, the precise mechanisms that enable mirror therapy to work are unknown, and it is unlikely that they will be discovered anytime soon. Indeed, the complexity of the brain and the variation between different patient cases mean that the mechanism for recovery in stroke patients and phantom pain patients means that there is unlikely to be a single general mechanism by which mirror therapy is effective. For now, we know that mirror therapy works with relatively high success rates, and that much is enough. However, with further understanding of mirror therapy's mechanism, the effectiveness and technique can be improved, which means that there could be further potential to be unlocked in mirror therapy. Mirror therapy is just one of the several different types of rehabilitation techniques that exist for patients who have suffered from brain injury. Now, I'll hand over to Anapam, who'll be discussing speech and language therapy. So now I'm going to be talking about speech and language therapy. But first, let's begin with what it is. Speech and language therapy provides treatment, support and ongoing care for people who not only have communication problems, as the name implies, but also with things such as eating, drinking or swallowing, as all these actions are related to the mouth, tongue and lips. And issues with those parts of the body typically have the same root cause. Nearly 20% of the general population experience communication difficulties at some point in their lives, while 7% of children aged five years have specific speech and language impairments, with a further 1.8% having specific speech, language and communication needs linked to other conditions. And all of these people will need the help of an SLT. Speech and language therapists, or SLTs, 
are classed as allied healthcare professionals, which means they work alongside healthcare institutions, such as hospitals, to provide specialist support. But they also work in other places, such as schools. In the UK alone, there are 1,700 practicing SLTs working in a variety of settings. As well as the previously mentioned ones, they also work in courtrooms, prisons, young offenders institutions, community health care centres, hospital wards, outpatient departments, clients' homes, and they even work independently or in private practice. They mainly help with managing and caring for people with a variety of conditions that affect their ability to communicate, swallow or eat. This includes adults and children with learning disabilities, such as autism, dyslexia or Down syndrome, or physiological conditions, such as cleft palates, hearing impairments or resonance disorders. To become an SLT, most degree courses last three years. However, there are also degree apprenticeship courses available. So how does speech and language therapy work? It begins with patient assessment through observation and testing. The whole process generally has three key stages, assessment, diagnosis, and then treatment. During the assessment process, different tests are administered. For example, patients recovering from stroke will be tested on the types of food they can swallow safely, ranging from soft yogurts or ground up food to harder foods such as apples. However, patients with learning disabilities such as dementia would go through memory exercises to gauge their recollective capability. A speech and language therapist is trained in all areas of communication, from speech itself to body language and even facial expressions. This learned this knowledge will be applied alongside treatment from the medical team to analyze the patient during this assessment process. The therapist then devises a fully rounded treatment plan specific to that patient, which can involve specific activities and exercises or other therapeutic strategies to aid the process of recovery. Even after you've left the hospital or clinic, this form of therapy provides ongoing support for the patient in conjunction with other services, such as other therapists, the patient's parents, if they're a child. So how would you find an SLT? You can refer yourself to a local NHS speech and language service, or you can ask your primary healthcare physician to refer you to one. NHS therapists are members of the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists and are registered with the Health and Profession Care Professions Council. However, in the UK, there's an increasing number of private SLTs who are registered with the Association of Speech and Language Therapists in Independent Practice. ASLTIP members are certified members of the Royal College's Speech and Language Therapists and are also registered with the same Health and Care Professions Council. However, they do not work in conjunction with the NHS and they are instead seen separately. They do, however, work with schools, charities in a separate position. In the UK, children are actually entitled to a free assessment by local NHS speech and language therapy teams, usually after referral by health visitors or education institutions. But parents are also entitled to request an assessment directly. This is usually done when the child is in their early days of schooling to make sure these sort of problems are caught quickly. Speech therapists also play an important role in multidisciplinary teams when a child has a speech delay or disorder as part of a wider health condition, such as the learning disabilities we mentioned earlier. In the UK, there was a recent report from the Children's Commission for England in June 2019, 
that there was what was called a postcode lottery in some areas. For example, in some areas, up to £291 a year per head was spent on speech and language services, whereas the budget in some areas was as low as £30 or even less. In the previous year, 2018, just under 200,000 children in English primary schools were on the Special Educational Needs Register needing these services. And due to this variance in availability, depending on your area, you may have to go see an independent practitioner. In total, there's roughly 17,000 speech and language therapists currently licensed in the UK, and all of them are able to offer these services to help people with a range of conditions. Now I'll be passing on to Shrey, who's going to be talking about physiotherapy. So physiotherapists take a holistic approach to treatment rather than focusing on only one specific part of the body. So let's go through some of the treatments that physiotherapists offer. First, manual therapy. This involves the physiotherapist massaging parts of the body to relieve pain and stiffness and encourage better movement of the limbs. And after a brain injury, many people find that their movement is impaired. Um, they also find it difficult to balance and have difficulty coordinating their limbs as they were before. And physiotherapists are part of the aftercare after they come out of hospital to make sure that they recover again to what they were before. So the main thing that physiotherapists do is looking at movement and exercise. They provide exercise plans that are designed to improve movement and strength in a specific part of the body, one at a time, improving its strength until it's back to normal. They also have exercise that move the whole body, such as walking and swimming. And swimming is really good because it's not putting so much stress through the body as other things such as walking and running. Um, there's also hydrotherapy, also known as aquatic therapy. And this is exercise in warm, shallow water. And the water provides resistance. And this allows the muscle to get stronger in a controlled environment. They also provide mobility aids if people are struggling, such as crutches, walking sticks, um, Zimmer frames. If people have impaired mobility and they're prone to fall, these can be very helpful. They also provide education and advice. So as long as the exercises that um, to boost strength, they also have exercises to stop pain in the long run once um, the patient has stopped seeing the physiotherapist. And obviously this is uh, prevents long-term effects from a brain injury. And they also stress the importance of healthy, a healthy lifestyle and being active because after a brain injury, you, many people don't feel confident enough to be active again. And this is really important in the recovery process that people get out and about. They use their limbs so that uh, the body can recalibrate itself. So physiotherapy can start in hospitals. So if you have a brain injury, you're probably going to end up in hospital at some point after that. And physiotherapy starts from the hospital, mainly um, stuff like manual therapy. And then once you're out of hospital, it continues at home and also um, in GP practices as well. And 
that can help in the long term to make sure that people are getting fully recovered from brain injuries and it's to minimize the effects of the brain injury and this is important to make sure that people recover to their precondition throughout the process of rehabilitation physiotherapists use the motor assessment scale to determine how much movement a person has and how much control they have so there are it um there are a number of different tests they do, and this is rated from zero to six, with zero meaning complete inability to do it, and six being perfect ability to do it. So um, the tests are supine to side lying. So supine line is lying on your back, um, facing upwards, and then going to a side, so rolling onto your side. Second test is supine to sitting over the edge of the bed. And then there's also balance sitting, uh, going from sitting position to a standing position. There's upper arm function movements to test whether the upper arm is functioning properly. Uh, walking, which is obviously very important practically in making sure that people are independent. Uh, the hand movements and also advanced hand movements. So these eight exercises are given a score out of six. So the, a perfect um, person would be get a score of 48. And that means that by having these scores, uh, they can track progress over time and see which areas need particular focus and uh, which areas are going along well. And if something's going wrong, they can uh, maybe look at um, sending them for tests um, to make sure that uh, nothing else is going on. So that's a brief overview, overview of physiotherapy. And now Surya is going to be talking about cognitive behavioural therapy. Cognitive behavioural therapy, also known as CBT, is a talking therapy that can help manage your problems by changing the way you think and behave, as defined by the NHS. It is mainly used to treat anxiety and depression, as well as other mental health problems that can arise due to brain injury. Cognitive behavioural therapy is based on the belief that your thoughts, feelings, physical sensations and actions are interconnected. Therefore, negative thoughts are thought to be very harmful to the body's overall well-being, as the negative thoughts could potentially result in a dangerous spiral. The main objective of CBT is to help patients deal with overwhelming problems by breaking them down into smaller pieces. By helping to break the negative thoughts thought patterns, the patient's well-being can be improved. CBT mainly focuses on dealing with a patient's present problems, unlike some other talking therapies that focus on past issues. If a patient is recommended to do CBT, then they will have a session with a therapist once a week or once every two weeks. Patients will typically attend approximately 5 to 20 sessions, with each session lasting for, for around 30 minutes to an hour. During these sessions of CBT, the therapist will help the patient to break their problems down into three categories, thoughts, physical feelings and actions. The therapist will then look at how each of these three different things are affecting each other and the impact that they are having on the patient's life and health. The therapist will then suggest ways in which the patient can change these unhelpful thoughts and behaviours.
The patient will then be expected to implement these changes to their life. And in the next session, they will be discussing how, how implementing these changes have helped their well-being. The main aim of CBT is to help you to try and apply the things that you learn from sessions into your lifestyle. This creates a long-term benefit of CBT as these skills can be used to solve existing problems as well as prevent future problems from affecting your well-being. This means that CBT can be thought of as a method of disease prevention. CBT does have certain advantages. It could potentially be helpful in treating medical problems that are not helped by the intake of medication. In addition to this, the time taken for CBT to be completed is relatively short compared to other talking therapies. And the biggest advantage is that they can easily be integrated into your life. However, there are also some disadvantages that come with CBT. Though patient-centered patient care is essential in order for patients to adhere to treatment, CBT focuses a lot on patient-centered care. The patient really has to commit to attending to sessions and implement changes which can be difficult for busy individuals. The treatment might not be suitable for those with more complex mental health problems and learning difficulties, as it, as it involves following a structured session module. CBT is sometimes really focused on individuals and it forgets to address family and other external issues, which might also have a significant impact on mental health. CBT has been shown to be very effective at treating various health problems, such as schizophrenia, PTSD, OCD, insomnia, and a whole range of other problems. So that was just a brief summary of cognitive therapy and how it can help mental and physical health problems that could arise as a result of brain injury. So thank you everyone for your points about the different types of rehabilitation techniques for bouncing back from brain injury. Now, let's talk about the question, can a patient recover fully from a traumatic brain injury? Is it possible that a patient can recover back to their state that they were in before the brain injury? through rehabilitation techniques. What do people think? So I think that this kind of links in with what we discussed about neuroplasticity a few episodes ago, where, where we discussed how the brain, brain is a really plastic organ and um, it can change with response to stimuli. And so I think it is possible to help patients regain uh, their sense of independence so neuroplasticity is a way of tackling this issue, and but it might not help the full recovery of the patient. Yeah, I think it's really important that these therapies exist to give people more confidence in their recovery, because many people don't feel confident after a brain injury, especially if they've had severe effects and their mobility is impaired. They feel like they're reliant on other people, and that means they never fully recover. And I think it's really important to have these therapies to give them that confidence to uh, return to normality. And of course, recovery is not either recovered or at the same state, because recovery is a scale from where they started and where they finished. And any improvement is welcome when it comes to a patient's independence and quality of life. So I think that though rehabilitation techniques may not be completely successful and a 100% effective technique for completely curing brain injuries. I think that the improvements that they provide to those who have brain injuries is a significant improvement to having no treatments. And I definitely think that rehabilitation as a process is not just 
something you do for a few weeks and then that's it you've recovered it's an ongoing process where the therapists the doctors and that whole team are working with the patient to try and get them the best sort of support they need Providing these treatments? Should it be the responsibility of the NHS or should rehabilitation from brain injury be privatised? Well, I think that the structure of the NHS really helps to make this work because GPs are usually connected with other healthcare services. And I think that these services can be utilised to help treat um, brain injury through, for example, cognitive behavioural therapy. So I think that GPs referring patients to other services can really help boost this kind of um, this kind of treatment. Um, especially with some of these more specialized therapies, I think sometimes the NHS might not be able to provide it. So a solution could be that while there is private practices that are able to specialize in these very specific therapies, maybe the NHS could um, contract it out to them and so it'd still be free for the patient but the NHS wouldn't be providing it it'd be a private firm that the NHS pays. I definitely think the advantage of having the NHS involved in a lot of these therapies is that they have that sort of national reach and like with for example speech and language therapy they work on a national level with the schooling system which is also a public nationalised institution to make sure kids at that young age get the support they need. And I think that's something that might be lost if it's given too much to private contractors, that sort of national, uniform, free, but equal reach that the NHS has as a institution. Indeed, the brain is a complex, delicate organ like no other, and treating it is much, much harder than would be expected. As time passes, treatments are improving and rehabilitation techniques are becoming more and more effective. But what with our limited knowledge of the brain, it is hard to push forward. So that's that for this week's episode of Medisodes. Thank you, Aaron, for listening. Remember to like, comment and subscribe. And we'll see you in the next episode.